Chapter Eight of A King in Babylon. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A King in Babylon by Burton Egbert Stevenson. Chapter Eight there are two kinds of directors in the motion picture business the first and oldest and commonest kind believes in doing all the head work himself he never tells his actors anything of the story as a whole or consults them in any way he gets them together places them in the various scenes tells them what he wants them to do rehearses them till they do it to his satisfaction and then tells his cameraman to shoot so the actors go through scene after scene without in the least knowing why sometimes they never know what it is all about until they see the completed picture on the screen there are a good many arguments for this method the principal one being that moving picture actors for the most part depend on the outside of their heads rather than the inside in other words they make their living by their looks not by their brains and the only way for the director to get the results he is working for is to treat them like a lot of cattle and then since it is almost always impossible to take the scenes consecutively as they occur in the story it is consequently impossible to build up the action and emotion from scene to scene as is done in a play every scene has to be worked out independently of the others and the director is the only one who can look at it objectively and judge of its effect the great objection is that under such conditions the acting is almost certain to be wooden and in the effort to get away from this there are a few directors who like to sit down with their actors before they begin a production and talk the thing over so that the actors will understand the story and be able to use in the various scenes such intelligence as they possess there are also quite recently a few actors with sufficient self-respect to insist on reading the scenario as a whole before they go into it i am inclined to think that it is with these actors and these directors that the future of the motion picture business lies creel could be as autocratic as any director in the game but he could also recognize intelligence when he saw it and he preferred intelligence to stupidity he wasn't afraid of it as i am inclined to think some of the others were and he was always anxious for criticisms and suggestions discarding them instantly if they were worthless as was usually the case weighing carefully any that possessed a grain of merit and laboring ceaselessly to get from his material 
every ounce of possibility so in the days that followed he spent a good deal of time with jimmy and mademoiselle roland gradually building up the picture both of them seemed to have a sort of sympathetic insight into what he was trying to do and creel was very much elated at the progress he was making he had of course worked out the plot in a general way before we left new york and the main lines of the story were not to be changed but the particular way in which this or that effect could be best secured was the subject of endless discussion it was in these small twists and touches that creel delighted they were to him what style is to the writer they gave his pictures an individuality all their own and both jimmy and mademoiselle roland entered heartily into his spirit ma creel and digby sat listening most of the time and i would drift up now and then and occasionally molly would tear herself away from her officers and stand behind mademoiselle roland's back and glare at her but it was very seldom any of us contributed anything to the discussion in fact most of the time it was entirely beyond our depth i wasn't surprised that creel should know a lot about ancient egypt for he knew a lot about everything and of course he had been reading up but where the other two got their knowledge i couldn't understand it wasn't exactly knowledge either it was a sort of intuition just a flash now and then but i dare say it was worth more to creel than any amount of mere knowledge would have been it had been decided after all to have the slave market with molly as the principal slave and to introduce mademoiselle roland later on in the way jimmy had suggested creel was anxious to show jimmy in his first incarnation in an aspect so repellent that the audience would be eager to see him get what was coming to him later on so molly was to be treated in the most ruthless way her spirit broken her body tortured business with the whip till reason left her and she was driven out into the desert to die then would come the other woman's turn but hers would prove to be a spirit as strong as her master's and the struggle between the two was to provide the dramatic interest for the third reel culminating when the woman overcome by a passion she had struggled against in vain threw herself at her conqueror's feet and begged for love and he fighting back an impulse to stoop and raise her stamped her into the dust and turned away with a laugh of contempt i admit that doesn't sound much better than the summaries i have scorned but the way creel described it 
and the way jimmy and mademoiselle roland looked at each other as they imagined the action was enough to give one the shivers these long discussions had brought them nearer together in a way they talked without constraint almost with friendliness and yet there was something strange in the way they sometimes eyed each other a sort of half-frightened half-fascinated curiosity it reminded me of two wrestlers maneuvering for a clinch and sometimes i would see that hungry look come into jimmy's eyes and so would the girl and then her face would freeze over with a film of ice and she would visibly draw into herself for in spite of the fact that her aversion seemed to have vanished mademoiselle roland held steadily aloof from him they never walked together or sat together or talked together unless creel was present and the talk then was entirely about the picture when she did any walking it was with me and i was mighty glad of her company in fact if it hadn't been for her i'd have been pretty lonesome for molly seemed farther away and more inaccessible than she had ever been well we ploughed on eastward with perfect weather zigzagging back and forth by day and wrapping ourselves in darkness by night we sighted a warship now and then or a freighter loaded deep with munitions but never a submarine and then one morning as i was looking over the side i saw that the water had changed from deep blue to a sort of yellowish green and somebody said it was the nile water pushing out into the sea and pretty soon a tall lighthouse was in sight and then a lot of masts and funnels and then a huge breakwater surmounted by a ridiculous statue in a frock coat which somebody else said represented de lesseps and almost before we could see the flat shore we had passed the harbor entrance and were at port said previous to this everybody who was going to get off there had been summoned before an officer with the coldest eyes i ever saw and put through the third degree as to his business antecedents and moral condition and all this information had been carefully written down and we were then lined up checked off and delivered to a guard on the pier who marched us off to be examined again by the port authorities but there wasn't half the trouble i had anticipated creel had his letter from the ambassador at washington and a lot of other documents ready to spring but he didn't need them those officers didn't seem to be half as afraid of spies and bombs and such things as the people back home had been they just looked at our passports and then looked at us especially at molly and mademoiselle roland 
and told us to run along i suppose they knew all about us before we arrived and i heard afterwards that the russian successes against the turks had made an attack on the canal so improbable that the regulations had been loosened up a bit the train for cairo didn't leave for about two hours and mademoiselle roland insisted that i take her for a walk through the native quarter i asked molly if she would like to go too but she said she wouldn't as she really didn't care for pig pins it wasn't so bad as that but it was pretty bad and i was astonished at the way mademoiselle roland enjoyed it her eyes were shining like stars and her lips were red as poppies and she sniffed the air with distended nostrils as though it contained some delicious perfume of which she couldn't get enough i had scented it long before we got ashore a peculiar penetrating odor a compound of flowers and spice and filth and human sweat the smell of the east it seemed to me pungent and rather overpowering and the natives shuffling along the streets were the dirtiest humans i had ever seen but my companion looked at them with positive rapture and didn't seem at all disturbed by their vociferous begging you certainly do seem at home i said at last it is curious is it not she assented but i feel as though i belonged here among these people nevertheless i wouldn't let them crowd too close i said and poked a verminous old beggar with my cane the whole place smells like a circus and indeed there was in the air something of that fetid odor of strange animals but mademoiselle roland declared it was delightful and when we finally pulled away in the train she stared out in ecstasy at a landscape which seemed to me extremely depressing the railway was a narrow gauge affair running right along the bank of the canal an uninspiring ditch about a hundred yards wide filled with muddy water there were a number of battleships in it and on the other side as far as the eye could reach were the round white tents of the expeditionary force enough of them so it seemed to me to shelter the whole british army and guns and great piles of supplies and herds of camels there were some officers in the car with us and they just laughed when i asked them if they thought the germans by any chance could capture the canal we came at last to a dinky little town whose name i never knew and there we changed to a real train and creel and digby checked up our baggage to be sure we hadn't lost anything and in a few minutes we were off to cairo it was swelteringly hot 
and a fine white sand was continually filtering in from somewhere though the country we traversed was green and fertile looking with nothing of the desert about it and we all grew very cross and uncomfortable all that is except mademoiselle roland she had taken to egypt as a duck to water jimmy whom i had suspected of an oriental strain was as miserable as any of us and i concluded that he was pure irish it was not until we were nearing cairo that creel imparted the cheerful news that we were not to stop there but were to go straight on to luxor that it seemed had been one of the conditions of our being allowed to enter egypt at all i don't know what it was the english feared we might discover at cairo all that we did discover was that a very fair dinner may be had at the station which isn't in the town at all and then we were bundled into a special sleeping car and the long trip up the nile began i had always thought of egypt as a small one-horse country and i was astounded to learn that luxor is five hundred miles from the sea and that it is only about a third of the way to khartoum it was evening as we pulled out of the station at cairo but we caught a glimpse of the shadowy mass of the pyramids on the right before the night shut down and then creel who was like a war-horse scenting battle got out his scenario and summoned jimmy and mademoiselle roland to sit by him and began to talk and talk jimmy was too tired to do more than nod now and then but the girl was fairly glowing with eagerness and there was a light in her eyes as she listened to creel that i couldn't understand it couldn't have been caused by anything he was saying heaven knows it was as though she saw at hand about to be realized some supreme moment for which she had been waiting all her life ma creel and molly and old digby had gone to their births long ago and the only thing that kept me awake was a peculiarly vile egyptian cigar in which i had invested at cairo and which i was struggling to consume i gave it up at last and threw the frayed rope-like fragment out of the window and just then jimmy's head dropped sideways and he opened his eyes to find creel looking at him reproachfully it's no use old man jimmy murmured can't keep my eyes open a minute longer all right said creel go to bed all of you mademoiselle roland didn't look in the least sleepy but she rose obediently and said good night and rustled away toward the women's end of the car while jimmy and i turned gratefully toward ours and i was asleep almost before i touched my pillow 
End of chapter 8